take our Bibles tonight. We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. We're finishing up chapter 3, and we're looking at the last of the seven churches of Asia, uh, the church of Laodicea tonight. So Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14 is where we'll begin reading. Jesus, speaking through the Apostle John, says in Revelation 3, verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things said the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's bow once again in prayer. And I'm going to ask Brother Randall, if you would, to lead us in that prayer, please. last several weeks we have been looking at the seven churches of Asia and uh, we have seen Christ speak to six of those churches so far. Uh, We know that out of the the total of seven churches that he addresses, five of those were rebuked, two of those were commended uh, for their faithfulness to him. Uh, Out of those that were rebuked, we had a church that was doing all the right things and were involved in all the right things, were teaching all the right things, but had lost their love. In another church, we uh, found a church that had allowed false doctrine to come in. And, uh, and so they, uh, they perhaps were, were loving or had some of the other good things going on, but they were teaching false doctrine. Another church was just sinful. They had some things that Jesus was kind of happy with, but, uh, but they were just a sinful church. They just allowed corruption to come in. And uh, we found a, corruption, a corrupted church with the church at Thyatira. Uh, And then, of course, uh, tonight, as we look at the church at Laodicea, uh, we're going to see one that has just begun, uh, become complacent, has become stagnant. And uh, and then, of course, with the church at uh, at Smyrna, I believe it was, uh, we had had a church that was dead. And uh, and so they had to revive some of the things that were remaining. 
Uh, but tonight we're looking at the church at Laodicea, and uh, there's going to be some interesting things that we find from here. Now, the other two churches that were commended, uh, we had one, which was the, the church at Sardis, I believe. Uh, the church at Sardis was, uh, they were a smaller church, and they were being persecuted, but they were faithful. Even through all their sufferings, they had become faithful. And of course, Philadelphia was just commended all the way around. They were, they were a church that was doing church right. I mean, Jesus was just very happy with them, and uh, they were a loving church. They were a giving church, a faithful church, a, a doctrinally sound church, and uh, Christ was just uh, very pleased with everything that he saw there. But that is in sharp contrast to what we find in the church of Laodicea. Of all the churches that Jesus addressed in these chapters, I don't believe any of them are as well known as the church in Laodicea. Matter of fact, if you talk about the seven churches of Asia that Jesus addressed, the first one usually that comes to mind, uh, well, the two that come to mind are going to be Ephesus and Laodicea. And uh, this, is, this is probably, as I said, the, the most well known of these seven churches. Uh, in fact, it's probably the only church that many of us could name. There's a reason why Jesus saved this particular church for last. As Jesus examined this church, he was not just angered by the things that were going on. He was sick. This church made him sick to his stomach. I want you to notice that in this, in this letter that he writes to the Laodiceans, he did not warn of swift judgment. He didn't talk about coming in and fighting against them with the sword of his mouth or killing their children with death or anything like that. He, he says, I will vomit you out. You turn my stomach, is what he says to the church of Laodicea. The fact that Jesus felt this way probably came as a complete surprise to this church. In other words, I don't think that they were all sitting around wondering, how can we make Jesus sick today? I think that this was completely a surprise to them. They, they had no idea that Jesus was so upset with the things that they were doing. In their hearts, perhaps they felt that God was impressed with their works and as content with their lives as they had become. They were blind and it would take the light of the truth to open their eyes. So as we consider the church at Laodicea tonight, I want us to take special care to consider our own church, consider Calvary Baptist Church, consider our own lives. For there has not been a generation that resembles the church at Laodicea any more than the generation we find in the United States today. We need to be very mindful of what we see in this church at Laodicea and what Jesus says to this church at Laodicea. Now, I want to present just a, a few things tonight. And the first thing I want to present is this church's fantasy. This church was living in a fantasy world. They had uh, created this world where they could do what they want, where they could be involved in what they want, and uh, act how they want, and spend their money how they want, and talk how they want, all these things the way that they want to do it, and in their own power, and yet still be pleasing to God. That was the fantasy that they had created for themselves. 
Now, let's talk about the city real quick. The city of Laodicea was an extremely wealthy town. The economy was booming. The industry was doing well. The people were financially sound and secure. Uh, it was a successful banking center. They had uh, lots of, uh, you know, they produced their own, uh, own coins and things like that. They had a mint there. Uh, they produced very expensive clothing. They had an unparalleled ISAB, medical ISAB, that they could put on people's eyes. And all kinds of other exclusive uh, commodities that some of these other cities would not have had available. Compared to the world around them, Laodicea lived in a bubble of comfort and luxury. In other words, what this church had become or what this city had become was self-sufficient. Now, I think it's very interesting. When you study these different churches and you study the cities that they were planted in, you're going to find that many of the things that were going on in the town around them, Jesus actually began addressing in the churches itself, which tells me something. It tells me that the church was not doing its job of influencing the city around them, but rather that the city around them had begun influencing the church. In other words, they were not countercultural. They were with the culture. They, they were allowing the culture to shape them. And this is what we find as well in the city of Laodicea. Uh, the city was a very, as we talked about, a very wealthy city. And there was actually a, uh, I think it was an earthquake or something that had come through and just destroyed many of the buildings, uh, tore up a lot of the city there, just some natural disasters that had come through. And, of course, it, it had an effect on some of the other cities that we've, we've read about as well. Uh, that same, same storm came in. Well, Rome actually sent a letter to the city of Laodicea because this was a very important city. And from what I understand, Rome sent a letter to them and said, we have relief. We could send you money. We can help you to rebuild. And Laodicea sent a letter back that said, we are fine. We have need of nothing. Now, what's interesting is Jesus takes the physical that's going on here in the city of Laodicea and he applies it to the spiritual issues that were going on in the church. As a matter of fact, we're going to see he almost makes a direct quote from what Rome sent to the city of Laodicea. He says to the church at Laodicea, he says, you say that we are rich, that we are rich, increased with goods and have need of Nothing. In other words, they thought that they were spiritually rich. They thought that they had everything that they needed. And unfortunately, they thought, as many people do, that the fact that they had money, the fact that they had uh, monetary value... Uh, gave them spiritual value or spiritual standing before God as well. And we're going to find that Jesus did not feel the same way about that that they did. And the result, the church of Laodicea was also a wealthy church. The people in the community were wealthy. Uh, the church became a wealthy church as well. They no doubt had a beautiful facility. They wore fashionable clothes. They had comfortable seating. They plotted the latest advances in technology and transportation. There was nothing that they needed. They proudly gave the expected tithe each week. They probably viewed their offerings as charitable contributions to God. And they no doubt felt that God was relieved to have them and their money in his kingdom and there to fund what he needed to do uh, in the church and in the community around them. 
Their busy lives probably left little time for God's word and God's work. Their prayer lives were probably minimal because what did they really need? You know, I know people, I know some missionaries who bring report back. I've read about some of these, these missionaries and the churches that they pastor and the places where they're working. Where people will travel by foot for days to come and lay on a pallet on the floor so that they can hear teaching from God's Word. And then they'll go back to their homes and try the best that they can to reteach that in their churches and communities. And we have a hard time setting aside 15 minutes a day to open God's Word. We are so important, aren't we? (laughs) God, I would love to spend some more time with you, but I am just so needed by everything and everybody else. My phone didn't get enough attention today. I brought this with me, by the way. Y'all know I turned this off, right? But I brought it with me just as a reminder. My phone didn't get enough time with me today. I'm going to spend some more time on it. Lord, if I have enough time, maybe... 15 minutes before I go to bed, I'll try to read half of something and then fall asleep while I'm praying. That's sad, isn't it? You know, I think the truth is, we have time for exactly what we make time for. And we have time for exactly what is important to us. And if there's something important to you, you're going to make sure that you do that on that day. But I, I would say that, that probably we're going to find some of the same patterns in the church at Laodicea that we find in our American churches today. And I'm not trying to point fingers at you. I'm saying this is something that's going on in our nation. It's going on in our culture where we are just so busy. We don't have time for God. We don't have time to do God's work. Amen. We don't have time to spend in God's word. It's a foreign concept to try to tell somebody to spend maybe even at least an hour a day reading their Bible and praying. That, that's unheard of. Who has an hour a day to do that? We get up in the morning and we go until we can't go no more and we go to sleep. We don't go to sleep when it's dark. We go to sleep when we can't sit up any longer, right? And we're going to fight it as long as we can. <laughs> My kids were like that, man. They, they'd be uh, trying to go to sleep and, and uh, they would nod their heads around. And, you know, I'm still awake, all right? Don't, don't worry, everybody. I'm still awake here. And uh, we kind of do the same. We, we would just run ourselves out until we have no more time. And I want you to look back on the time that you spend each day. What are you really doing? With that much time. You go to work. Okay, I understand that. You go to work. You got to eat. But what are you really doing that you don't have time to spend with God? It's a sad note. The sad note on our churches is a sad note on our uh, on our culture. But I think that that's exactly what was going on with these people here is that 
they just they had everything they needed. They had all the entertainment that they needed. They didn't need to spend time with God because they had other things that were as much or more interesting than he was. You know, who wants to sit around and read the Bible all night when you can watch a TV show or you can do something else and, or uh, flip through Facebook or whatever it may be. You know, they, they, they just didn't have time for it. And that's what we find uh, many of uh, us having the same problems as well. Again, their busy lives probably left little time for God and His Word and His work. Their prayer lives were minimal uh, because they didn't need all the things that maybe others have to pray for. In other words, they were fine. They weren't suffering persecution like the Christians in the cities around them. They weren't in need for anything. They viewed themselves as valuable assets to God's work. In their eyes, they were the prototype for a perfect church. You may wonder how I have such insight to this church's fantasy land. And I'm just trying to describe the churches that I've been a part of as I've grown up, as I've been in church. I believe that churches today are living in a fantasy. I think we have created this fantasy land, this fantasy world that we live in, and we call it the kingdom of God. We want to act like we're involved and we're engaged in the kingdom of God, but our bubble of comfort has left us unguarded against sin. It's left us lazy in God's work and distant from Him. And we don't even know it. We're self-centered and we're self-reliant. Here's another great illustration, and I can put myself right in the middle of this, that I had to be introduced to a thought process that makes my life God-centered instead of self-centered. I had to reprogram the way that I think to start looking at things through through God's eyes and and start seeing what He's doing instead of deciding that I'm going to do what I want to do for God and ask Him to bless it. That's something that I had to reprogram myself to understand. How many of you have had to do the same or are beginning to try to do the same? Why? Because we are. We are self-centered. We don't rely upon God to do things. We we, we figure we got the money to do it. We can uh, can pay for it. We we get people, the manpower to do it. We'll just do it. We're not relying upon God. We're not relying upon His provisions and His power. We're self-reliant. Our spirituality is gone, our sacrifice is little, and our sin is great. Still, we somehow can take this information about ourselves, flip it around in our minds, and then praise ourselves for what little we're doing for God's kingdom. I think it's sad, and it's a fantasy where we get to live like we want, we get to do what we want, and still be good Christians. Let me talk about the church's reality. We looked at what perhaps they thought about themselves. Let's look at what Jesus thought about it. In verses 14 through 17, Jesus says this, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Look at this. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. He says, I would or I wish. That you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. He said I will spew thee out of my mouth. And we'll read a little bit further later. Listen the church had put on a good show. But Jesus was not impressed 
with the show they were putting on. Look at how Jesus introduced himself in verse 14. Remember that he introduces himself differently to every single church. And he says, uh, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. Now, others may have been fooled, but as a true witness, Jesus would reveal what they really were. And listen, I don't, I don't know where we are now. I think God has brought us a long way over the past several years. He's brought me, I feel like he's brought me a long way over the past several years. But I know for a long time that going to church every Sunday was a game. Where we played dress up and we came in and put smiles on and tried to make everybody else think that we're fine and that we're spiritual. When inside, we really knew where we were. We knew what we were. We want to show everybody how righteous we are. How good we are. How good a Christians that we are. And inside, we know. Amen. We know. Right. That we're not what we should be. Amen. I played that game far too long. You know? and, I, and I hope that's not go, that doesn't go on in our church anymore. But it might, it very well could if we don't pay attention. If, we, if we're not God-focused and we become self-focused again, we could very well try to do the very same thing again. Jesus was telling the church here that like the town's water, they had become unusable. Let's look at verses 15 through 16. Now he says in verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I would or I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, this is something that uh, I, I think we've gone through the seven churches before, and I may have shared this principle with you. Uh, before, but usually we think of this in terms of spiritually hot or spiritually cold. So, in other words, hot's where we should be, cold's where we don't want to be, but then they were just somewhere in the middle. Like they weren't completely cold for Christ, but they weren't completely hot either. They were just in the middle somewhere. But I, I want to re gear your mind a little bit, okay? And just listen to what I'm saying with an open mind. Remember that Jesus is addressing things in the church by using things that were going on in the city or the area around them. Now, what's interesting is when you get to studying this, there were two cities in the surrounding area that had their own water sources. We're about to get our own water source here in a second. But there were two cities that had their own water source. Laodicea did not have its own water source for the city. As rich as it was, it had no water of its own. So what they had to do is they had to pipe, I believe it was hot water from Colossus or Colossae. They had to pipe in hot water into Laodicea from there. And then uh, Hierapolis had cold water springs that they would pipe in from there. Now that, you may check that out. It may be vice versa. The other may have had hot or, hot or cold or whatever. But the point is, is they, they didn't have any of their own water. So they piped in either hot water from here or cold water from there. And that's the only water that they had. But after hot water spends some time away from its heat source... What does it become? <laughs> Becomes warm, don't it? 
And after cold water spends some time away from its source, it becomes what? So by the time it made its way into the city of Laodicea, the water changed from being hot or being cold to being something warm. In other words, you can do something with hot water. It's useful. You can do something with cold water. It's useful. But that lukewarm water was not something that they wanted to drink or they wanted to use and whatever because not only did it become temperature-wise became warm, but it became tepid. It became stagnant. And you know what begins to grow as water gets stagnant and tepid? All kinds of bacteria, all kinds of gross stuff that you don't want to drink. Now that's what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea. He wasn't saying, I want you to be hot for me or cold for me. No, no. he's saying you're like the water. You're neither hot and you're not cold. You're lukewarm. You're tepid. You're stagnant. You're sinful. And because you're this way, I, I will spew you out of my mouth. You make me sick. I'm going to tell you, you drink enough lukewarm water and you may do the same. And even if you don't do it right away, whatever has grown in that water that you put in your belly, eventually you will. And this word spew literally means vomit. You will vomit it out of your mouth too. Jesus said, you make me sick. The stuff that you're doing, this church that you're playing, this religion that you're trying to carry on in your own power and your own mind, he says, it's sickening to me. They become useless to him. Now, most of you know that I'm a coffee drinker. Alright? Now, I love coffee. But I want my coffee hot. And every once in a while, I might drink my coffee cold. But I don't want my coffee warm. (laughs) It, It needs to be one or the other. It's useless to me after it's been sitting on that desk for a little while just become tepid or just become warm. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying uh, to this city. I didn't have that backwards. Colossae was the cold water source. Heropolis was the hot water source. But you get the idea. He said like the town's water, they had become unusable to him. And so he would spew them out of their mouth. We also see that they were blind in verse 17. He says, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They had been so blinded by their own flattering self-perception that it was time to see themselves through the Lord's eyes. Jesus says, you're poor. You think you're rich, church. You think you're rich. You think because you've got money in the bank account that you're rich. He says, but you're poor. Jesus told the faithful church at Smyrna, if you remember, He says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. He says to the church at Laodicea, I know you think you're rich, but you're poor. Amen. Right. And He's not talking about monetary value. He's talking about being spiritually rich or poor. To the church at Smyrna, though they had almost nothing, he says, but you're rich. This church had everything. But he says, you are in dire poverty. Why? Because your spiritual account has no bearing on what's in your bank account. 
They were blind. They become ignorant and unaware of how spiritually deprived that they had come. And he says, you're even naked. They thought they had clothes. They, they were wearing the, the newest fashion. Everybody came in and, and said, whoo, you look nice today. You know, yeah, where did you get that? It, well, you, I see you wearing a new suit today or a new toga or whatever it was that they wore. You know, I, wow, that's that's nice. Who, who made that? You know, and they're, they're, everybody's impressed by what everybody's wearing. He says, you think you got clothes. But you're naked. You're unclothed. You think you could cover up what is really going on in here. He says, but I see it. That's what I believe it means when he says that they were naked. Nakedness not only symbolized the open shame that they brought upon themselves, but also to the one whose name they carried. I think it's very interesting that... The writer of the book of Hebrews, he says over in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. As a matter of fact, let's just turn there. Keep your place here and go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Very interesting statement he makes. Now we know verse 12 real well. Did there say Amen. If not, it's okay. We'll keep up because uh, I'm really going to be in verse 13 where I'm going to point out something. But in verse 12, he says, For the word of God is quick. That means it's alive. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Look at this. Piercing even to the divider, uh, dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now I want you to look at this. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are what? Naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now what is this saying? It's saying the word of God is so sharp. It is so powerful. It is so alive that it can cut you right down to the core. It can lay you open before God where this person might not see it and and your pastor might not see it and the people you work with might not see it. But he says, I see it. I can lay you wide open before me. And I want you to notice the last part of this verse 13. It says, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That never made any sense to me, but I looked at another translation of that. It says, with whom we must give an account. Now Jesus said to this church of Laodicea, He said, you think you're clothed. But I see what you really are. I see what's really going on. I see what's happening when you've left the church building. I know what's going on in your heart when nobody else dies, he says, and you're naked. You're poor. You're blind. And you're miserable. I want to ask you this evening, how do you think it would feel to see your life? I'm sure we all have a perception of where we are. But how would it feel to see your life, your service, your devotion, and your righteousness through God's eyes? That'd be a difficult scene for me. Amen. Because the thing is, when it comes to me, I have no righteousness. Amen. Right. 
I have no goodness. And if there is any righteousness in me, it's because He's put on His righteousness. We see the church's recovery in verses 18 through 20. I find it interesting that Jesus did not state the consequences. He doesn't talk about consequences here, but He lovingly shows them the way back. Now, we may look at this and we may say, Jesus was just done with this church, but He wasn't done with this church. He says, this is what's going on, and I love you enough, church, that I'm going to tell you what's going on. And if you want to come back to me, if you want this to be right, then here's what you do. Jesus was not happy with the church, but He didn't want them to remain in their lukewarm condition. His message was simply this, return to me. In verse 18, He says, I counsel to buy thee, buy of me gold in the, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye sap, that thou mayest see. He says, if you want to really be clothed, and really be able to see, and, and really have all these things really be rich then you can't look to the city around you to find those things you got to look to me He says, buy pure gold for me that you may be rich buy white garments that you may be clothed and anoint your eyes that you may see and I think there's a little of uh, <laughs> I don't know if you call it irony I don't know exactly what you call it but you know what the fancy clothes of that day were? <laughs> Especially in Laodicea? Is they had a pure black wool that they would sell. And that was what was in style. I mean, this was expensive. Because otherwise you would have to dye by expensive dye to get your clothing the, the kind of black that it was here. They had a sheep that, that lived in that area, that grew around in that area. And they could make a pure black suit or dress or whatever it was that they needed uh, out of this stuff. And that was what was in style. That was in fashion. They thought, man, because we've got the best clothes, the most expensive clothes, we're clothed. He says, I challenge you to buy white raiment of me that you may truly be clothed. Perhaps that black wool that they were wearing and thought gave them a covering, perhaps it truly reflected what was going on in the heart. He says, uh, I'm not going to give you black raiment when you buy from me. I'm going to give you pure white raiment. Black signifies sin. White symbolizes holiness, purity. He says, I'll clothe you and you'll be pure. You'll be holy. You'll have my righteousness. He says, and anoint your eyes that you may see. But I want you to notice this. Recovery would require repentance in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. My dad would often say, right before he took his belt off, he'd say, uh, some of you know where I'm going to go with this. This is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. And I always wanted to have a longer discussion about that with them. <laughs> and I was like, well, can you explain that one to me? But you know, when I, until I had kids, I didn't understand what he meant by that. But it hurts to come down on your kids. It hurts 
to punish your kids. And even though the writer of Hebrews says that earthly fathers do it for their own pleasure, it still hurts. It's painful to chastise your children. Listen, I don't think Jesus took any pleasure in getting on to the church of Laodicea the way that He did. But His chastening had a purpose. And His purpose was this. Zealous repentance. And what that means is to repent with enthusiasm. Look at that in verse 19 again. He says, as many as I what? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He says, be zealous, therefore. Be energetic about this. Be enthusiastic, therefore. And repent. Turn away from what's going on. Then we see one of the most tragic scenes in God's Word found in verse 20. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, I've heard this verse preached so many ways. And I've heard so many times this be applied to salvation. And they would say, maybe even stepping down like this for an invitation, they would say, Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. And he just wants to come in. Will you let him come in? There's even a song about it. (laughs) I want to tell you something. Although if you are lost and without Christ, you need to trust Him as Savior. That's not what He's talking about here. This is what He says, not to lost people, He says to the church. Now let me ask you a serious question. Who is the head of this church? Christ is. Who was supposed to be the head of the church at Laodicea? And where was He? He wasn't even in the gate. He was standing on the outer courtyard of the gate, banging on the door, knocking on the door, and saying, if any man will hear me, let me come in. And the one who does, I'll fellowship with him. I'll eat with him. They'll be closest with him. But that is the saddest scene that I can think of is us meeting every week here. Us holding services every week here. Us doing things in the name of God every week here. And Jesus standing out there, knocking on the door, asking if He can come in. They had kicked Jesus completely out of the church there. And listen, not every person was going to hear. I want you to look at verse 20. Not every person was going to hear, but he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and will open the door, look at this, I will come in to who? To him. To anyone who will hear my voice and open and respond. He says, I'll come in to him and I will sup with him. I'll eat with him. I will fellowship with him. Meaning this, there may be some in the church that would refuse to hear the knock, that refuse to answer. But he says, to the one who will, I'll have fellowship with you again. Listen, I hope that that is not the case where our church is. I hope Christ is standing at the door uh, wanting to come in and, and be a part of what we're doing here. I hope that He is the head of this church, He is the leader of this church, and, uh, and that everything we do is about and for Him. 
But if he's not, he says, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who will hear, I'll come in and my fellowship will be with him. And I want you to look at what he says in verse 22. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I'm just going to leave us with that right there. I can't think of a, a better closing to all of these messages that we've had than what Jesus said in that last verse. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches.